0: Hi, I'm Rita Savasco. We're here today to talk about our product, Annotating Literary Elements, and I'm joined by my good friends and colleagues. Uh, On my right here is Tracy Molitoris. Those of you may know that Tracy um, is a graphic designer in Rooted in Language, and she's part of the whole think tank behind what we do. I like being called a think tank. I'll take that. You're the entire think tank,
1: right? (laughs)
0: So, Tracy, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Tracy and I um, developed this together, but we did it with input and insight from Claire Molitor, who's a reading and writing tutor uh, that works with me in my private practice. Uh, Claire has a degree in um, creative writing, and she also does graphic design and, and uh, graphic arts herself. So, thanks for joining me, Claire.
1: Absolutely.
2: Claire also is the one you might hear from if you send questions to Rooted in Language because she handles (laughs) a lot of our administrative issues.
0: Yes, yeah, Claire's been awesome for that. So you want to remember that name because she's the one who will help you solve our many problems that we seem to have come our way. So uh, many of you have been using annotating literary elements and we have been wanting to talk about this with you and we've gotten some comments and feedback. And we'd like to share some of our thoughts about uh, why we did this and Mm -hmm. what our goals were in working with kids. So I thought we would just start with this general conversation of why do we at Rooted in Language think annotation is so important and why do we think kids need help with it? Mm -hmm. So I thought, Tracy, you might want to start us off.
2: One of the things we constantly hit on at Rooted in Language is finding ways to get children to connect with text. So you're not just reading, you're not just decoding, Uh, you're actually engaging with the words on the page and you're finding all of the many, many things that are available to find beneath the text. So annotating, the process of writing notes in the margin and interacting with the text physically as you read, reading with a pencil, we sometimes call it, is a very powerful tool to help children do that, or adults.
0: Right, and I get questions now and then of, is this a response to some political agendas in the field of education, all of a (laughs) sudden kids are needing to annotate more? The answer is no, I've been teaching this stuff for 30 plus years to kids. Um, I feel like I'm glad uh, that, you know, more traditional education is starting to talk about it a little more because this is a strategy I've been using for years to try to get kids to um, connect with text. That said, I see a lot of struggles in annotating. And, Claire, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the struggles we tend to see when kids trying to annotate and figure out
1: how, why. Um, yeah, a lot of it is is that sense of, when they just have no idea what it means in mm-hmm. terms of, like, okay, you're, you're told in maybe in a school setting um, or while reading something that you'll annotate it and therefore you'll understand it better and you'll have a richer connection with it. And then they go, okay, great, that sounds awesome, and then stare at the book and have no idea what to actually do in terms of annotating. Um, you also get where they're told they need to highlight things or write notes in the margins or something like that. and
0: Underline. Yeah,
1: do a lot of underlining. Um, and you turn around and they've highlighted the whole page or the whole book because there's no sense of understanding what's actually, you know, the key piece of information or the important thing that you need to pull out of a particular passage or, excuse me, out of a page. Um,
0: Right. And they don't seem to really know how to mark text, what they're looking for. Sometimes teachers will say things like, write questions in the margin. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not... The only way we annotate we annotate key ideas we annotate um, connected thoughts that we have so so we decided to break this down and teach annotation in the way we teach it when we work with kids and um, part of the value of all this is we use some key strategies and one of them is um, we use picture books so we Every time we do something, we like to start with a picture book um, and we try to pick a picture book that we think will cross ages. So mm-hmm. we pick something that all kids would like K through 12. Um, Tracy's my master at picking picture books. And Tracy, why did we pick the book that we picked to go with this, um, this program and what's the value of using a picture book to start?
2: Okay, well let me
0: back up just a little bit and say that
2: in our curriculum, we divided it into five different sections, four of which are all about uh, trying to organize for students and for the people teaching them. How do these various pieces of information that you're looking for within text, uh, how can you um,
0: categorize them so that it makes them a little simpler to learn? Yes, and remember. And remember. Right? If we can put certain ideas in a basket, now you only have to hold, say, four baskets. Every right. basket holds a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, these are the 50 things you should look for exactly. when you're annotating right. Text. right, Which is just overwhelming.
2: Uh, so the very first section is what we refer to as plot arc elements, which are the basic structural pieces that make a story. And that's any story. Uh, If you were telling a verbal story about what happened to you on your way to the bank that afternoon, you would use some of these basic elements to make the story interesting to your hearers. And that's what writers do when they write. So again, to try to make this uh, concept more accessible for children, uh, we love to use picture books as their first experience looking for plot arc elements. Right. Right. But picture books are such a great tool because they're visual, so they're accessible to kids of all ages. And older kids enjoy them. They remember, they have fond memories of picture books when they were growing up, and they're always willing to dive back into one, at least in our experience.
0: Yes, and we try to, pick, as I said, we try to pick ones that we know would appeal to teenagers. So this one in particular has aliens right. that have landed. Um, in a house right and, and they're they encounter the family cat and they encounter the family cat. <laughs> they're and, small They're very small. Aliens. <laughs> they're very small aliens and you know, uh, we also um, Are you know, we're discovering over the years and we'll come back to this later that even children's picture books are not Simple stories no, the not way anymore. they used to be. Not not right. and, and, we, and
2: that's the thing though about picture books is that they are microcosms of literature. They, they contain many, 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 sometimes all of the elements that you're looking for when you read a novel.
0: Right. And the problem with a novel is it is filled with multiple characters and multiple events and multiple high points mm-hmm. and multiple low points And everybody has a problem, even though it may not be the main problem. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And it can be really difficult. It's easy to get bogged down in a book. So we wanted to kind of make everything like we talk about in Trees in the Forest, of trying to make things both visible and enjoyable. And we did that with a lesson that you can do in a one-time sit-down. You know, Picture books are short.
2: Standard picture book is 32 pages long. Yeah,
0: right. (laughs) I didn't know that. Um, But they're short. And you could actually engage in plotting out the plot arc on that one book. Um, And get that framework from, this is what we're looking for, this is what we're working on.
2: All in one lesson, which is
0: great. Right. So that's why we do it. And we use Post-it notes. Claire had said something earlier about the great thing about sticky notes is they're sticky in more ways than one. So Claire, why don't you talk about that value a little bit? Yeah.
1: Um, So sticky notes, obviously being literally sticky because you can stick them to things. Um, And I know we do a lot of, with that kind of visible and enjoyable concept, where oh, we created a plot arc and our table isn't large enough, so let's stick it to the wall. Um so it kind of adds that level of playfulness to it. So mm-hmm. you can just, you know, stick it all over the windows and the walls and the floor wherever you want it. Um as well as, you know, there's a, a time honored tradition of writing something down makes you remember it better. Uh so that more metaphorical aspect of something being sticky, as in it sticks in your head. Um, so I've experienced with my students that you know, they're, we're discussing what characters are and what setting is and what all these different things mean. And it's kind of nebulous form. It's kind of, you know, a little wishy-washy. And then they actually write it down, and they go through this process of putting pencil to paper, and suddenly they can explain to me what setting is, you know, right. from then on.
0: Right. And... Um, it gives a little more ownership. It's Mm -hmm. sticky in that way so that if you're, you know, plotting this out on, you know, a long piece of paper or a wall or a table or, you know, a science poster board, um, trifold board, you know, if you're doing that, um, when you come and you're working with a bigger book, Mm -hmm. you come back to it later and it's stuck, right? You don't have to go through this big review of what did we say before. It puts the ownership back on... The student that this is what I wrote this is what I understood then I may or may not agree with it anymore I might want to add something Um, you know another value of sticky note is you rip that one off and you write another one so if you decide you're changing your mind on something um, you can either get rid of a sticky note or you can begin to set them aside that Mm -hmm. this was a hypothesis that I had now I have this hypothesis but I'm not ready to say that one was wrong. Right. I'm going to set that one I'm aside put it for a little here. bit. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and so it's stuck. It's not gone. It's not like you're saying two weeks ago, what was that great idea you right. had about, you know, and no one can remember because, you know, life is busy right. and yeah. so on. So, and they, I, they
2: also are accessible, uh, like picture books, in that they're small. So right. you can do bits and pieces of writing. And it doesn't overwhelm kids, especially those kids who struggle with writing. They can write a few
0: words and they filled it up. Right. If you're going to talk about something like what's the conflict, what's the theme, kids can feel like, well, I don't really know that I fully yet know what the theme is, but I have this little idea. Well, great. A sticky note it invites the little idea. Yeah. it doesn't have to be complete. Absolutely, and you know you can be in process.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say too. That sounds like we're like sponsored by Post-it Note. Yeah, it does. But, <laughs> but I love using different colors. You know, we talked about. You know, you can buy them in every color under the sun, and I color code stuff because I like the hyper organization aspect of that, and I like to share that with my students too, where we decide to put all the characters we're talking about on blue post-it notes and all the, you know, great quotes we find on green post-it notes, you know, and and that kind of thing. So that it also makes it easy looking back at things where you go, oh, let's, you know, flip through the book or look at the wall for all of the yellow things. And that means that we've discovered the symbols throughout the book or something like that.
0: Right. And we did color code our plot arc. Mm -hmm. Um, with that in mind that you could um, match up those colors if you want another thing my students have done is uh, many books today have multiple main characters multiple perspectives may in fact have multiple protagonists um, and they've picked shades of colors um, (laughs) to you know represent this you know this coral pink represents this character and this hot pink represents that. Yeah. And the light pink is representing, you know, the events in the story kind of thing. Right. So um, that's one of the ways that, you know, you can also use these colors and adds a little bit of fun to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like you said, Claire, it brings kids back to, you know, this idea that Tracy was talking about. That if you can hold ideas in a basket, there's not so many ideas anymore. Right. You know, in terms of working memory, it's a lot more helpful um, so that uh, the color coding can give kids a way to kind of be grouping things in their mind for the future. So um, let's move on. Let's get started. It's interesting that plot arc, which most people would say, oh, my kids know that, has been one of the things that's raised the most questions. (laughs) And, And I find even with my own students, every time we have a new story, We are, it's easy to really just be um, focused on plot arc because there's so much there, especially in the modern story. But Trace, um, so talk a little bit about how we set this up in our uh, curriculum.
2: So we have created a general plot arc that we believe is usable for any story, any fictional, even Mm non-fictional stories a lot of times follow a plot arc. Uh, So we tried to create these chunks of information that are found in every story. So we put them in what would be kind of a traditional or classic order. Mm -hmm. You have your introduction phase and then you have your rising action and you have your falling action and you end up with a conclusion. So, And there are pieces within each of those stages. What you'll find in a lot of modern literature is that it doesn't necessarily come in that order, but the chunks are still there. The pieces that make up the plot arc are still in that story somewhere. The challenge is unearthing them and figuring out what they're doing for the story. What is their role in the plot arc? Uh, And hopefully the plot arc we've created allows you to do Uh, Any narrative structure that you encounter, it's just some are more
0: challenging than others. Right, and they might look a little different, but we wanted to teach kids the basic foundational framework so that if they see variations off that, they understand what it's a variation of, Mm -hmm. right? We wanted them to kind of have the the basis so then they could have those discussions. Uh, One parent said something about, we couldn't decide where to put this post-it. Well, I think that's beautiful. My goal is not so much the answer of where to put that post-it, but the process of having the debate of where to put that post-it teaches kids an awful lot about story structure and what the writer's doing, the writer's style. So, So when you feel like, wow, I didn't know the answer to that, Um, just know that you've probably engaged in great questions and and And, have a hypothesis. that your post-its allow for that. Right. So what you think right now,
2: you might change your mind in five chapters. Something might occur that says, oh, I don't think that was the crisis after all. Mm -hmm. I think this is the crisis. So you're free to move your post it somewhere Mm -hmm. else and create a new one.
1: And like you said, Rita, I mean, all it does is open the door. If you haven't already had that discussion, it opens the door for continuing to have a discussion about um, you know expanding the view to why the writer chooses to do things you know you're not so much focused on what's happening in the story but why those decisions were made in the first place which
0: which is a really important point yeah. because kids have got to make a shift from I'm retelling plot mm-hmm. that's what they think writing is is retelling plot they have to make a shift to analysis right. so by creating this method um, all of that discussion, you're, you're laying those juicy, down those juicy conversations, Julie Bogart likes to call them juicy conversations, <laughs> that kids need to have in order to engage in analytical writing. You're Absolutely. right. So Claire um, actually um, was our biggest source in um, creating this plot arc. You know, she she finished college a few years ago. She knows what everybody's talking about right now. <laughs> Um, a little more than Tracy and I, who did it, um, let's just <laughs> no, say, quite more a few, than a few, years ago. <laughs> a few yeah. decades ago. Um, and uh, so, Claire, tell them about this triangular model that you set up sure. in our plot
1: arc and um, why. Yeah, uh, I guess I can start with why, I guess, <laughs> a little backwards. Because um, when we were initially discussing putting this stuff down, we had talked about sort of the basic formation of the plot arc. Um, and one of my... I wouldn't say issues, I'm not sure how to describe it, one of my...
0: nagging, arcs,
1: Yeah, just kind of this notes. ongoing thought that, you know, niggles the back of my head, um, is that, you know, when you first... When in school, when I first learned about the plot arc, it was a very simplified sort of mountain shape, which is what is typically taught. Um, but then we, as I got older and read, you know, higher and higher literature and got into college, I started to realize that the plot arc is a little more complicated than that. It's bumpy and it's... You know, it's not clean. It's not straightforward. Um, but nobody ever explained that to me. There was never any other model, other than this sort of basic: go up one side, reach the top, come down the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the more complex view of it was never was never shown to me. So I wanted to approach it in a way that you can see it as a simplified mountain, because that is a legitimate way of you know uh, approaching the Pont arc. But Also, that there are these other pieces in there that are equally important as understanding going up one side and coming down the other. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably the most important. Yes, and yeah, I'd argue that they're they're maybe more important. Um, And that's these kind of three main explodey points, I guess, this this triangle of action, I guess. Um, The first of which being the spark event. Um, so, you know, in the beginning of a story, you have the introduction, which can last anywhere from, you know, in a picture book, it can be a page. It could be, 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 be a
0: square.
1: It could be a square, yeah. You know, you're reading something that has, yeah, panels in it. It's mm-hmm. just, whoop, there it is. One panel, yeah. 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 You know, it, it might establish where you are, who you are, um, you know, the overall tone or mood of the story. Um, in a book, you know, by like Tolstoy, it might be 300 pages of introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so, you get you know, it varies, obviously. Um, but inevitably you come across this this initial sort of explosion that I call the spark event that is the push out the door. It's the thing that actually gets the ball of action rolling, um, it's the reason that you have an adventure, it's the reason your protagonist becomes the protagonist, um, or your antagonist becomes the antagonist. Uh, in some stories we're kind of talking about it is literally a push out the door, you know, a, a, the Hobbit. Yeah, in The Hobbit. Well, The Hobbit's a little gentler, I guess. But yeah, right. Gandalf comes to Bilbo and says, you need to get out. You've been sitting around too much. You're lazy. Uh, go have an adventure. And that's the spark event. That's the moment of, I will step out my door and have mm-hmm. an adventure. Um, sometimes you never this, know where the right, road will never lead you. Right? <laughs> um, sometimes the spark event is a little more violent, uh, in particularly in you know adventure stories where you have you know some town gets attacked by the dragon, you know kind of thing, and and our hero emerges. Right.
2: Um, you were talking about Beowulf.
1: I was yeah talking about Beowulf, how Grendel you know comes and attacks the the main hall, and that is what causes you know everyone to realize we need a hero because we have a villain, and so. You know, that's the spark event, and that's the the one pillar, the one triangle, corner of the triangle. Um, But
0: spark events can be difficult to find. And one of our um, users um, (laughs) said that her son, in particular, had a difficult time identifying the spark event. Mm -hmm. And I think um, just to look at this in a way that can be more helpful, I think it's important... Don't skip the picture book. Mm-mm. They right. did, right. Um, and also um, spend time talking about these familiar stories and familiar movies, and yeah. just really ponder what do you think was the spark event? We actually spent some time here prior to to taping this, having all this discussion around <laughs> spark event. I mean, you could have a lot of different theories oh, yeah. going. And you do, you actually don't want to
1: just go look it up. Right. What you want is the conversation and the theories. Right. Um, one of the methods I will use sometimes is to just kind of dive into listing events sometimes. Like, let's just talk about what happens toward the beginning of the story. Um, so, you know, okay, they they the protagonist goes here and does this thing, you know, or he fights back against, you know, whatever it might be. Or, you know, just kind of talking about and listing these things until sometimes, and a lot of times the student is the one who goes, hey, wait, that seems more important or that seems, you know, we wrote more about that event or yeah, we agree. talked more about that one or there was an important object that mm-hmm. came up in that, you mm-hmm. know, and so a lot of times it's, it comes from the, from the child, from the student about, hmm, maybe, you know, we're leaning a little more heavily toward that Post-it note being our Spark event rather than just a sort of introduction event, you know, that happens.
0: Right. The other thing that can happen is um, a student might think that a certain character is the protagonist mm-hmm. so they start to recognize oh a conflict occurred from right. that spark event right. that's a byproduct of this spark um but then later they may decide I think I was wrong I'm not sure I think that was the well no, I shouldn't say wrong but I think I I now think it's this character who's the protagonist mm-hmm. and they had this conflict and for that character I think this is the spark event. So, right. so I don't want you to feel like just because we have it on the the plot arc, you know, it, looks very, very yeah, yeah. it looks very clean. Yeah, it's <laughs> very clean and static. It can be very changeable right. as you're progressing in a story. Absolutely. Because you may learn information that changes your mind. There may be a flashback that occurs later in the story. That tells you what the real spark event was right. in this character's life. And you didn't know that in the beginning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's one piece in our triangular <laughs> One thing. Uh The next one, I guess chronologically, um, moving up the sort of rising action mountain there, is the uh, what I call the crisis. Or the crisis moment, crisis event. The sort of, um, this point in the story where uh, the protagonist has reached their lowest point. So the nadir would be kind of that literary term. Spell that, Claire. It's N-A-D-I-R. The nadir. Yes. Opposite of the crest, right? You have the peak being the highest, the nadir being the lowest, emotionally, metaphorically. Um, and I, I always think
0: of that as Mount Doom. Kind of a joke. If you know right. the trilogy story, you know Mount Doom is is such a... Um, perfect picture of the crisis moment. It really
1: is. Yeah, you've got, of course, you know, it's a big, black, gloomy mountain and explosions. You know, yeah. it's very sad. Inside, it
0: looks like hell. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes.
1: Um, and yeah, and, and with that, you have, you know, Frodo's lowest moment where he doesn't think he can climb the mountain. He can't actually destroy the ring. You know, he is starting to honestly believe that he won't succeed at all, right? And this is a, a true sort of heartbreak moment. And Sam becomes the hero. Yeah, he does, and, and that kind of that, that moves on to another point, but in terms of just the crisis. Um, so it's this low point, it's, it's uh, yeah, this maybe recognition of failure on the part of the hero, um, and then usually progresses like that, like with Lord of the Rings, very smoothly into a turning point. So you transition from that point of our triangle, that pillar, to the climax being the next pillar. Um, and uh, a lot of times it can have, they happen right on top of each other, which can make them difficult to distinguish and difficult to say, oh, that's actually the crisis and that's the climax. Um, but if we keep using Lord of the Rings as our example here, um, the moment where, Frodo believes he, you know, has reached the end of the line and Sam is the one to turn it around and pick him up and carry him up there. And that gives Frodo the ability and the strength to believe in himself again and then go rushing forward. and
0: Reminds him of where he came from right. and who he is um, in and leads you to this discovery that you can have more than one protagonist. Yes. And they can have more than one conflict. Absolutely. And they can have more, more, more than people than just one who has a crisis and grows from that crisis. Yeah. And all of a sudden, when you're in deep into a novel, you start making more post-it notes. <laughs>
1: right? <laughs> yeah. No, there's post-it notes going everywhere. Um, so then the, the with regard to the climax, is typically... Categorized by there's a high point of action, you know, the highest point of action frequently, um, and a change in the main character. So you have that turning point at the crisis, but then an actual maybe emotional, maybe psychological change that the main character or whatever protagonist you've chosen to follow (laughs) um, undergoes. So I mean, we're still kind of talking about Lord of the Rings. If you switch over to Aragorn as the protagonist he undergoes a climax where he realizes that he really is the king, right? And he's the true leader that he was born to be. And his crisis and climax happen way earlier in that story. Um, where that's he, right. He yeah. has a, crisis much, or a climax much yeah. earlier. Much earlier, right. yeah. Um, so, and he finally, you know, he gets the sword that's been forged for him. Good indication that, yeah. <laughs> that, that there's a climax because he has a, the tool that really serves that purpose. Um
0: we were talking so. about this difficulty of recognizing um, spark events mm-hmm. be, or, or even climaxes mm-hmm. because sometimes it looks like action. And it's easier for kids to recognize, oh, there was an action. Sometimes it's inaction. Right. And the inaction is a decision. It could be the spark. It could create a crisis. Mm-hmm. It could be that moment of inaction, which may, in fact, make a change. I was mentioning the book Thief Lord. Mm -hmm. When you get to this crisis moment in Thief Lord, there's two main characters, and you could argue over who you want to have as the main character in your writing of your paper. And by the way, I use that idea all the time. Which one do you think, which one do you want to say you think is... The protagonist, can you support that? I don't care which one of these two characters. But one of, in this moment, one of the character responds with action and has one outcome. Mm -hmm. The other character decides not to engage and has a different outcome. And those two outcomes still were important decisions those characters made. And it was decisions that that, um, changed them and grew them. So you have good argument for both characters Absolutely. and you have good argument that it's a climax for each of them, but it doesn't always look like action. And that's an important thing to know.
2: Mm-hmm. Also important to note the, the two different hypotheses you were talking about is, is quite common. And as your kids get older and they start to be at a college level, that gets applauded a lot more if you can come up with an alternate hypothesis and support
0: it through the text mm-hmm. that's a very valuable skill yes in fact they do not want to know what everybody thinks they want to know that you are able to come up with some different kind mm. of analysis and I, I love to tell the story that my daughter was uh, took a Jane Austen class as an English major in college And um, so everyone in the class had, you know, lived and breathed Jane Austen their whole life. Who else would take a Jane Austen class? (laughs) And um, they were all assigned a paper where they had to do some sort of analysis on Jane Austen that had never been done before. I mean, she wanted to pull her hair out. I mean, (laughs) this is someone who's been studied and written about for hundreds of years. And, you know, somehow she was supposed to come up with something different. Well, what's different is your take on it, your analysis of it, your look at it, your, dare um, I use the word lens, you know, your <laughs> Yeah, your view. lens, yeah. So, Which, um, so all of this debate is really helpful
1: for yeah. kids. Yeah, and I'm just thinking too, we talk about you're studying a piece of literature and then you kind of uh, zoom out to be able to write about that literature. If You keep zooming out even more about this, this how does this actually apply to the larger Concept of my life, mm-hmm. kind of. If we can get there with it, um, the ability to you know look at a situation and apply your own interpretive abilities to something, and your own ability to to take all these pieces of information and you know wrap them up in your own wrapping paper, and yeah, you know do something with your own flair and with from your own lens with with it is a hugely valuable just life skill. I mean, yeah. this is what you know, businesses look for and and, you know, just marriages. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Being able to problem solve, right? I mean that's right. Right. It's growth.
0: That's what growth looks like. And we talk about character growth, but we, you know, Shakespeare says, you know, all the world's a stage and we're the players upon it. You know, our own (laughs) growth is something we have to be able to look at.
2: But that whole previous discussion should free you up (laughs) as an educator to not be a slave to, oh my gosh, we have to find the crisis. You have to find the climax. There's a right answer here. Many times, the right answer is the one you can support. Yeah,
1: right.
0: Yeah, you mean don't think there's a
2: right Right. answer. You feel like there's a right answer. Yeah, the right answer is relative to your interpretation and what you found within the text to support that.
0: As long as you're comprehending, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I like to say, don't feel like there's only, you know, a right answer, one right answer. I mean, you know, you do have to generally be comprehending the story. You can get sure. late if you're not comprehending. But in general, you know, um, uh, as long as you're comprehending it, and you have an idea and you can support it, mm-hmm. you know, that's what a good paper is made of. Um, one of the things that I think was really enlightening for me when... Um, I added Claire's piece of this SPARK event is as I was talking with students you know this past summer everybody has their summer reading assignments everybody was creating plot arcs with you know post-it notes and um, when we started to talk about theme um, a lot of my students really struggle with what is the theme how do I verbalize theme can I find quotes that would support a theme Um, they have difficulty with all of that. And I found when I took those three post-its off, those triangular post-its that Claire was talking about. The spark event,
2: the crisis, and the climax.
0: Right. When we would just, that's another value of post-it notes, right? Or the sticky notes is we just pulled those off, put them on a new piece of paper, and looked at them. Just those three. Put them in a triangle, looked at them. All of a sudden, my students would say, and they'd start verbalizing what they wrote on one, what they wrote on another, what they wrote on another, and they'd say, oh, you think the theme is, and out would come the beginning of, you know, being able to understand theme. Yeah. And that, that is a hard concept it's to difficult. teach kids who struggle with more abstract thinking. And so this is the way you've taken something very concrete now, They've written their words on these three little sticky
1: notes. Mm -hmm. And
0: from that concrete look, you can begin to see something abstract.
1: I think, I mean, I think it's a difficult concept to teach anybody. I mean, I remember going, you know, in middle school, high school, we'd read a book and we're reading great literature, right? But uh, we're told, okay, what's the theme or what's a theme? And everybody just kind of looks at their desk. Like, I I don't know, you know, maybe. And then somebody throws out, you know, okay, we're reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, Mockingbirds are the theme because it's in the title. And they have no concept. And like, okay, maybe they are. Don't kill mockingbirds. Right, don't kill mockingbirds. (laughs) And I was like, well, why do you say that? Well, I don't know. You know, so it's, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with just understanding
0: theme in general. Right. So this leads us down two paths of conversation. So we have two more things to talk about here. One is, let's take a book like To Kill a Mockingbird that follows the traditional plot arc. And then let's talk about what's happening in literature now when we're not following mm-hmm. the, the typical pattern. So To Kill a Mockingbird basically follows the typical pattern. Oh, yeah. But what's the conundrum that we see with kids when they're trying to use this information and analyze To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: Well, uh, one of the big things that I encounter is their difficulty in figuring out who the protagonist-antagonist is. So, you know, a lot of people think, you know, that maybe Scouts the protagonist because it's told from her perspective, Whereas others might argue that Atticus is the protagonist because, you know, the sort of main storyline of the whole trial mm-hmm. and the injustice of the society surrounds him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third being maybe that Jem is the protagonist because he very obviously goes through a coming-of-age, growing-older life
0: cycle. Right. Um, Right. And so, you know, we have some choices here. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, op- we can open up some, uh, you know, supportive piece of text and say, oh, the answer is this. Right. Right. Or we can say to kids, huh, OK, well, let's play this out. Right. If Atticus is the protagonist, what's his crisis? What's the crisis mm-hmm. event? What's his conflict? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry. What's his spark event? What's his conflict? What's the crisis moment? Mm -hmm. What was the climax? Did he undergo any kind of transformative change? Right. You know, if it's JEM, how about that? Same thing. If it's Scout, how about that? Now at the end of all that, if if a student has supportive evidence, why would I stop them from saying it's JEM? I don't actually think it's JEM. I think you're pretty hard pressed to maybe make that case. But if you can make that case, you now are thinking at a level that colleges are actually. Absolutely. People, know? Know?
1: Yeah. The other question that I like to ask too is is who is their antagonist? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, that's the other yeah, piece. Right, right. Oh, oh and talk
2: piece. about the various kinds of antagonists.
1: Right, that, yeah, that sometimes. Um, an antagonist might be, you know, the the dragon attacking the town, right? Where it's it's a very obvious, or it's the evil villain, Mwahaha, mm-hmm. and you're going to fight them. Darth Vader. Yeah, Darth, Darth Vader mm-hmm. in the big black suit, you mm-hmm. know, very obvious antagonist figure. Um, and other times, and particularly in To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, a lot of the antagonists are concepts or constructs that are, you know, Scout is, is, horrified by injustice, right? She hates injustice and she spends... And the role of females. Yeah, right. right. and, and well, how, also
2: an in injustice. Also an injustice.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, but let's not go
1: no, there. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but so she spends a lot of the book fighting that mm-hmm. as, as her antagonist.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. And, and uh, what's interesting there is, you know, you can kind of envelope all of that in... Um, the big antagonist is society, right. and what is interesting about that, though, is to begin to look at well, in what ways was society making some shifts? Was there any hope for it? Did you see it in these characters who represented mm-hmm. society? You know, and so then when you look at who is society in *To Kill Mockingbird*. Who are those characters, and mm-hmm. what kind of representation were they? Sure. Were they someone who was narrow-minded and made no changes? Were they someone who wanted to see change but wasn't brave enough to do it? Right, right. You know, um, were they someone who was just wanted to be a champion standing behind Atticus? Way behind. You know, or even right behind, like right. like uh, Miss Maudie. You know, who's right. definitely a support person right. for mm-hmm. him but wasn't out there herself because of her views on her own role in that. You know, is it someone like Aunt Alexandra, you know, Mm -hmm. who suddenly makes this statement where you're going, what, what, what?" (laughs) like you actually had kind of a moment there, you know. So so all of that becomes very meaningful. Sure,
1: and it becomes kind of a mini history lesson going on there too Mm -hmm. because I had one student who's reading it and was understanding a lot of what was going on, but then at the same time was sort of, baffled by a little bit of the, you know, inter-familial reac- era interactions going on and by the, you know, societal behavior. So explaining, you know, uh, Deep South Depression era, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's hugely important to mm-hmm. the events that play out in that book. And it's, you know, it's kind of a mini history lesson on just a brief, right this is what it was like in that time period. But that's
0: why she wrote it, right. you know? Yeah, and as you were saying, when you can uh, take that perspective where you're stepping back like that, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're writing about, you're analyzing writer's style yeah. and mm-hmm. writer's choices. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of writing, the analytical writing we want to see. I see this all the time. I'll have Which, junior high. If and
2: I th- could interject just as, uh, for the people listening. We've been talking all about the first section, which is plot arc elements. The last section of the curriculum is writer style. Yes, another very really difficult it. area. We that. take yes. you
0: all the way through before we get to this idea of some of the components of writer style. But by then, you've really built up a lot, uh, you know, right. in your mm-hmm. in your toolbox about what the writer is doing and understanding the writer's
1: choices. What sure. I
0: was going to say, what I see right now for kids, and not just in. Uh, traditional education but in um, home school Um, Co-op situations where they're being assigned these papers. They will get an assignment. I want an analytical paper on writer's style Nobody even knows what that means. What does that mean? You know, they don't know what to write about. Well, by the time you do this You're gonna have a really good sense of what you would write. You're gonna have a whole stack of (laughs) (laughs) post-it Yeah, then it'll be what do you pick? Um, The last thing is this idea that in modern literature, the plot arc is all over the map. Um, and why don't you just talk about that a little bit, Claire?
1: Sure. Real quick though, I would argue that um, while we do have a lot of uh, a huge, you know, since writing, since storytelling first started, you know, um, there is sort of these the, this plot arc structure that is very traditional and very straightforward. Um, but there have been pockets in history where uh, writers kind of decide to wander off into weird narrative structure land. So, it isn't just a reflection of modern literature, too. I just think it's an interesting point. Yes, Um, it is an interesting point. I always bring up Frankenstein, um, which is not a modern piece of writing, um, but it's told in uh, a style that's called a frame narrative. Mm -hmm. So, the beginning and the ending take place at the the same same time. time. Yeah. Um, Circular, yeah. Yeah, it's circular. Uh, The center of the story does follow more of that. Okay, here's the introduction, spark event, you know, crisis, climax, falling action, conclusion. And all of a sudden, when you reach the conclusion, you go, "Wait, I've read this already because it was the introduction." Oh yeah, right. Um, So it's just kind of a neat like this is not a piece I don't think anyone would categorize as modern literature, and yet nice point. Yeah, yeah, nice point. (laughs) Um, You know, it's interesting because our book
0: club tonight is talking about a novel called A Gentleman in Moscow and I was reading a writer's interview and he wrote that entire thing in what he called a diamond structure, which he starts at this critical point of going through a revolving door and then he moves through time in increasing, doubling increments, so it's two days, then four days, then so many weeks, then, then so many months, year, and then so then many years, yes. and then, oh, and so then it, all that the, 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 starts, yep, and, and then, it then it all starts holding back, back. back down again, That's really cool. and yeah, it was just it's like,
2: it's a great book, by yeah, the yeah, <laughs> it is, it's a
0: really good book, so, um, you know, there's all kinds of cool things happening, and it's easy to get excited about it when you really start seeing it sure. in that way. Um, so, we were talking about some modern things that, some modern stories out there that are showing some of these different, um, uh, plot structures, and it brings up the topic of, um, time jumping or Mm -hmm. flashbacks. Flashbacks, So, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, flashbacks, when they happen in a story, uh, you have time moving in a certain direction, and then all of a sudden, we're transported to a different period in time, and sometimes it can be... A day ago, sometimes it can be four hundred years ago um, but it um, it happens in the past hence flashback um, so they happen uh, all over the place sometimes you can actually some stories actually start with flashbacks, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting mm-hmm. um, but uh, they're usually meant as Anchor points, I guess, is a good way of describing them, where you understand something about a character that's being told, and all all of a sudden, we go through a flashback, and we understand something slightly different about a character. So it kind of anchors them through time, Mm -hmm. um, and they can serve to completely alter your opinion of something, or to, you know, subtly shift your perception of either how the events are unfolding, or why a character is behaving a certain way. And they can be really confusing. (laughs) And they can be their own story. (laughs) And they can be their own story. And in fact, the short story we picked starts
0: in a moment. It tells an entire flashback story, Mm -hmm. goes back to that moment, and then tells another story. And I had a student who was trying to figure out how to create that plot arc, and she created a plot arc that was like one little mountain mm-hmm. and then a bigger mountain. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, hmm, that's oh, pretty brilliant, yeah, sure. you know? Um, because where do you put the flashback right. post-it? Right, is right. there a right answer to where to put the flashback post-it?
1: No, I don't think there is. Um, I, it, of course, it depends on the story. Mm-hmm. Um, because And here you get into oh, more discussions about writer style. Mm-hmm. Um, they happen all the time. Uh, is why you would put it somewhere. So, you know, maybe we're moving through a story where right after the crisis, we have this flashback moment. Um, If I were plotting it out, I would probably put that post-it right there, right after the crisis, because, and talk about no matter what that flashback is going to, whether it's, you know, before the introduction or right before the crisis, wherever it sends you, the reason it's put right there. Is what's worth discussing mm-hmm. um, so it why explain conflict right? right yeah why do we suddenly need to know this thing about this character right before the climax mm-hmm. or what does it say about what the, where the climax is headed that we learned it you know at this exact maybe moment?
2: it explains their reaction to that particular right crisis. exactly
1: yeah. um, so I I tend to be in favor of putting the post-it where it happens not chronologically within the story but chronologically, page number-wise, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So.
0: And I would say um, sometimes it's good to kind of let kids move them chronologically, yeah. and then after moving them chronologically, let them rethink it and put them Absolutely. elsewhere. So they might need that. They might need to just, if your child struggles with sequencing events, um, you might want to move them into chronological mm-hmm. order because they may need that it's confusing to them if you don't have it. I was talking about we just went to see the movie Dunkirk and that movie is all time jumping. And what was hard is it took me a, it took me a few minutes to like figure out that's what was happening. I think wait a minute that what they would do is they would overlap scenes and that was their first way of letting you know that what, that's what they were doing. I almost found that harder than a book. I find it easier <laughs> right. you know, in reading to realize I'm in a flashback sometimes in a, in a visual movie, especially if it's this same moment in time in the same airplane, wearing the same clothes. Right. Right? There's nothing about the way the scene looks, except now the plane is in a different place on the ocean, right. in the English Channel, <laughs> than it was before. Right. The and waves thinking, have a different scene. Yeah, right. And <laughs> I'm thinking, wait, wh- wait a minute. <laughs> he was over that boat. Now he's coming to that boat. Is that another boat? I mean, so, you know, it can be tricky. It can be very tricky. Yeah. Tricky. So you might need to order it yeah. first before yeah. you can figure out why it's there.
1: Yeah. Huh. Interesting.
0: Yeah, we were talking about the book All the Light all the line, You Cannot yeah. See. And what's going on in that book, Trace?
2: That is a book that
0: opens in
2: the crisis. So you're smack dab in the middle of the crisis out from page one. And then it time jumps all over the place and keeps coming back to the crisis as kind of a touch point.
0: And it has two main characters. It has
2: two main characters who are on the face of things would be a protagonist and antagonist, but you kind of realize they're not. They're both going through the same thing imposed by a war. So they're both protagonists, and Mm -hmm. they both go through their own changes. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating book to
0: read for that reason. Right. Um, You know, I think our point in this whole discussion is, number one, (laughs) that we put in the lesson we have there for a reason. It's easy to just go, oh, I get it use post-its. Let's do that with the book we have now. (laughs) And I don't have time to go to the library and get this other um, book. But I do want to express to you that we have found that it's helpful for kids to actually go through this more visible, Mm -hmm. more enjoyable Mm -hmm. structure first um, that we've given you. And then from there, take it to the more complex. And if
2: you need to, get more picture books. Oh yeah, and, right. And do it more than do once. Disney stories. Sure, yeah. do, do oh, yeah. Disney movies.
0: Yeah, great, movies. great plot arc
2: development in <laughs> right. Disney. Yeah, movies. yeah,
0: they really right. are. Yeah, we were kind of quizzing each other. We'd name a movie, and then everyone would have to say what was the crisis. You know, <laughs> um, so so I think that that kind of play that we were doing with each other is a great thing to be mm-hmm. doing. The other thing is to really recognize. That, you know, this is pretty deep stuff we're talking about Absolutely. here. Right? We're talking about, you know. Look how long we've been blathering I on. know. <laughs> we're talking about your child's entire school career. Right. You know. And so, beyond. And your own. <laughs> I mean, I feel like as a homeschool parent, I learned things that I had never known before. I mean, we're continuing to grow ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so don't feel like there's one right answer. Mm-hmm. Recognize... You know, all of this discussion is the value. And you're going to get something different out of every book. It's going to show you something new. It'll
1: Absolutely. will be something to say. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, give yourself permission to not know the answers and to work through it with your kids. Right. It's a good one to end on, <laughs>
0: All right. Thank you, Tracy and Claire. It's been Thank a great you. discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely.